0: thank you all very much for coming Um, this debate is going to be different from some other debates in the sense that all speakers will get even time to start with and secondly although two people are fairly pro development and two people are fairly concerned about the development of uh, using new we the objective is not to Break it and separate, etc. The ultimate aim is to try to get some forms of ways forward which will enable us to, to meet the objectives. So it's not, a, it's not an aggression practice. This is about uh, rational discussion <laughs> from all sides. Um, so, on, on my right, down is uh, henry overman who's professor of economic geography at lfc and most of you here i suspect uh, know him and have possibly even taught by him um, okay. uh, he's director of the spatial economic research center and he is particularly interested in issues of spatial disparities and and the impact of urban and regional policy so directly at the issue um, Just because Henry is often more interested in, not more interested necessarily, but more involved in in non-housing matters. The majority of the debate we would expect to be about housing, but obviously the use of green land and the use of green belt may be for um, industrial reasons or for commercial reasons and so on. So we're not excluding that as part of the debate. So Henry will go first, followed by Alex Morton, who probably you also all know, who is Senior Research Fellow in Housing and Planning at the Policy Exchange, uh, and he was uh, brought up in a small village in the Greenbelt, close to London, so at least he has personal experience of <laughs> the driver. On my left is Anne Power. Um, who is Professor of Social Policy at LSE and head of LSE Housing and Communities um, in the Centre for the Analysis of Social Exclusion. Um, she and Tony Burton, who is sitting uh, at the end, were members of the Urban Task Force um, and Anne is now also a member of the Sustainable Development Commission and the D- 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 Green Deal panel. So, urban issues and environmental issues. Tony is now Director of Civic Voice um, and as Director of Civic Voice and CBE for his services to the last 30 years, I guess, (laughs) Um, this this time round for which I congratulate you. Um, He's also been National Trust and before that Council for the Protection of Rural England and before that, think of an area with what's greener, Surrey County Council, and involved in the urban castle. So they're all knowledgeable, they've all been, they've, they've lived experience of the process, and they are all regular commentators on this subject. So we just want to clarify one thing, which is that... Uh, the title of the debate is about Greenbelt. There is no way in which we're going not to talk about Greenfield and Brownfield as well as Greenbelt, but we would like to try to distinguish the two stories a little bit, so some people will concentrate more on others, and of course questions are very strong.
1: Henry. Uh, thanks very much, Christine, for that, that introduction, um, and thank you all for coming this evening to, uh, to have a listen to us. Uh, I feel like I'm very much in the spotlight. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, should we ever build on the green belt? Uh, I timed my talk this afternoon, and uh, Christine will be pleased to know it came in under eight minutes, so I flannelled it for a minute there at the start. Um, plenty, of peop- <laughs> plenty of people who think we should not. Um, for simplicity, I'll characterise them as belonging to one of two groups dark green and light green defenders of, of the green belt, I find this this helpful. So dark green defenders they ask us to focus on the beautiful English countryside uh, they play up the environmental and amenity value of that countryside and, and make the case that we must preserve it at all costs for future generations. Uh, light green defenders do a subtly different thing. They actually ask us to look instead to our towns and cities. And Now they play up the environmental and social benefits of building a density. Uh, They claim it leads to better more walkable communities, more public transport use, better public good provision, nicer shops, yada yada yada. Uh, For this group Preserving the countryside and the green belt is is a sort of happy side effect uh, of achieving higher densities that they think must be good for everyone. I I should say I find the dark green defenders difficult to argue with, Uh, not I hasten to add because I agree with them uh, in any sense, but rather I I think those arguments can be very one-sided and very and overstate significantly the social benefits of the countryside and just willing to ignore any costs. And I I will just be upfront, that's a difficult argument for an economist uh, to engage with because we like to think of of offsetting costs and benefits. In contrast, the light green uh, argument is is certainly not without merit. Uh, My disagreements with its proponents are far more nuanced than they would be with the dark green defenders. Uh, in short, I think they arguably overplay the benefits of density, overstate our ability to deliver enough housing at higher densities and underestimate the costs of failing to deliver enough housing. But you see, these are arguments uh, about the sort of relative cost of benefits rather than absolutes. Uh, there will be time to cover many of the issues in more detail, so I'm going to limit my opening remarks to, uh, to focus on six key points. Um, and they're mostly about sort of how the current system gets it wrong. So, uh, first point: green belts and the planning system, more generally, restrict supply and increase house prices. Uh, I think the evidence is uncontroversial on this, uh, and this has a m- regressive impact on low-to-middle-income families. To give you some idea of the order of magnitude, uh, Hilbert and Vermeulen suggest that an area moving from average level of restrictiveness in the UK to the least restrictive place in the UK, which is still pretty restrictive, would see house prices fall by about 30%. I I put it to you, this is a pretty significant effect. Uh, Green belts, through restricting supply, increase housing market volatility. If you've never looked at these numbers, uh, let me just tell you that, at least until the last recession, uh, average house price volatility in the UK was higher than the most volatile market in the US, which is Los Angeles. Uh, These these are important costs. Uh, It's not just on housing, as Christine hinted. Uh, Green belts uh, and other aspects of the planning system increase the costs of doing business, and they can increase them quite substantially. Cheshire and Hilbert carefully document how planning restrictions in England impose a tax on office development That varies from around 250% of build costs in Birmingham, uh, not exactly a successful city, to 4 to 800% in London. In contrast, New York imposes a tax of around 0 to 50% of build costs. uh, And Paris, which I think we would all accept as a beautiful, attractive city, uh, manages to impose uh, a tax of around 300%. Greenbelt has other impacts on business. It lowers retail productivity and, uh, somewhat surprisingly, the, uh, appears to lower the employment of small independent retailers, mum and pup stores. Uh, Cheshire Retail demonstrate that planning rules reduce productivity in a leading supermarket chain by 20%. This gets passed on to us as consumers. While Sadden and Haskell show that small and independent shops have been hurt more in local authorities that have been more restrictive on out-of-town developments. The final point I want to pick up is that a strict Greenbelt policy Uh, and and strict planning, more generally, may not be properly uh, offsetting the social costs and benefits of brownfield versus greenfield development. Now Alex will talk about this uh, in a little more depth, but let me just give you uh, a few facts and figures on this. By 2005 about 70% of new development in Britain was on brownfield land. Uh, We don't know what this did to the pattern of development within cities Uh, or on the overall effects on the city economy as a whole. No one studied this. Um, Could skewing development towards city centres have come at the expense of manufacturing? For example, something that people worry about a lot, and less overall growth. Uh, Other effects. Brownfield land is expensive to build on. So how much uh, does the emphasis on brownfield land explain current Low levels of building. I mean, for those of you that don't know, we are currently building at 1920 rates on housing, uh, which I suspect is uh, lower than might be optimal. Uh, was garden grabbing a good idea? Uh, I suspect many people would think not, but the share of new homes built on previously residential land rose from 11 to 23% between 1997 and 2008. Now, some of that is green brownfield, some of that is garden grabbing. Um, I liked this one, so I'll throw it in. Uh, not very economic. According to the Guardian, the waiting list for allotments currently stands at 86,000. Why? Because we keep building on the damn things. Christine, I'm nearly there. I don't know how I'm doing for time. Oh, sure you're not. Uh, I mean, yeah, yes. Green belts, targets, and density standards have also tended to produce large numbers of small flats in urban areas. Although there is a clear need for larger family homes in these places. In short, strong green belts don't deliver the kind of development people want in the places where they want to live. There is a cost to imposing these things. Uh, These costs need to be offset against the benefit, which uh, other people will talk about, of preserving undeveloped land. Undeveloped land does deliver benefits, but research suggests that, particularly for high-intensity agricultural land at the edges of our towns and cities, these benefits are often nowhere near as large as is claimed time, perhaps, to start building on parts of the Green Belt. Okay,
0: thank you very much. Alex, do you want to
2: go straight on? Yeah, I'll pick it up. Um, Firstly, thank you to the LSE for holding this debate on a critical policy issue. I hope to win your hearts and your minds over to what I believe is a more balanced position than rejecting all development on the Green Belt. Interestingly enough, only 30% of people disagreed with a poll question that said, while most of the countryside around England's towns and cities should be protected, some could be used for housing and new development. So it may be that common sense is wider out there in the real world than the political bubble, with all politicians refusing to even talk about the issue. I'd also recommend our report, Cities for Growth, uh, which goes further into these issues than I can here, and obviously the LSE's excellent technical work. Firstly, I understand the importance of greenery. On your seats, you find a piece of paper with two pictures. One is where I lived when I was very young. I was born into a tiny run-down council flat in inner city Birmingham, but didn't really have much of a garden, there was a small six-feet yard, mostly paving slabs with a tiny lawn that backed onto train tracks. My parents, like many other people, moved into a family home when they could afford to, and then a bigger one, and I grew up in a detached house in Kent with a garden to play in. This area, where I spent my teenage years, is the second picture. Much of my interest in the housing policy is that such a move from squash grey housing to comfortable green home is increasingly difficult. Similarly, my parents moved south from the north to obtain a job. This, too, is increasingly difficult. Supporting the Green Belt means more grade for the vast majority of people living in our large towns and cities. The Green Belt makes up about 12% of England, as opposed to just 10% which has been developed. It is the land around all of our cities. Our opponents argue we must preserve this space at all costs. They argue that we want to destroy the countryside and abandon the city. Let me state that I support better use of brownfield land, but the UK already contains six of the the top 50 most expensive cities for office space. In London there is space uh, on derrick land for around 30,000 homes, or one year's supply. There is vacant or derrick land for 1 million homes across the uh, UK. Most of it is in the wrong place and that's also only four years' supply, even if only used for housing, despite expensive office space and retail space compared to other countries. Uh, That makes up about 0.001% of England, or around 1,000th of 1%. So anyone who thinks that will suffice for the next century uh, is simply wrong. We can build up an extra floor here, an extension there, and I support that, but that can't suffice. I repeat, only 10% of England is developed. This is not a question of protecting nature. 60% of the Greenbelt is intensively farmed agricultural land, and that's at least 60%. I don't support more building in areas of outstanding natural beauty, but that's not the debate we're having tonight. As well as sensible moves on Brownfield, we need perhaps an extra 2 or 3% of England developed. There is no way this increase can be avoided. Given that only 10% of England is developed, of which 3% or so is probably urban greenery, the choice is whether we lose almost all of that urban greenery, gardens, parks, tree-lined avenues, or if we keep it and lose 3% of our least attractive countryside. This problem is a fundamental choice. It cannot be wished away, for example, by reducing immigration. The main reason we need more homes is that half of homeowners have two or more spare bedrooms and they are living longer in those properties. Those who defend the Greenbelt would know that it was really first pushed for it in at London in 1875. Had it been created, there would be no Hampstead, no Dulwich, no Swiss Cottage, no Fulham. Eight million people would be crammed into zones one and two. If you support the Greenbelt, the logic is that this would have been better. There would, of course, be no urban green space at all, but we could rip down these suburbs and condense everyone into an ever smaller area to preserve the countryside. It makes perfect sense. The argument that we somehow stumbled upon the exact size for London around the time of World War II is nonsense. I believe what is important is that we retain enough green space as we go outward, and that we build attractive and desirable new areas as we move outwards. It's also wrong to believe that current policy helps our cities. Between 2000 and 2008, internal migration patterns showed that 900,000 people moved away from our major urban areas. Interestingly, they went to the most uh, rural areas, putting tremendous pressure on house prices there. Only international migration has halted the rapid decline in our cities. Because the demand for more homes is largely a function of existing homeowners not downsizing, we have people moving away from our cities and increased pressure for development. People want what we refuse to build, decent homes with gardens around existing cities. The number one place people want to live in the UK is the city suburb. City centres score lowest. The factors that supported our recent urban renaissance are fading. Between 1985 and 2010, student numbers tripled. The age of first marriage and cohabitation rose dramatically. Cities were only supported by immigration. I will also point out this was very much a core phenomenon in certain urban areas. And it was down to demographic change, not the Greenbelt, and it is likely to come out of steel in coming years. If we want to expand our cities, uh, sorry, want to help our cities, we need to expand them rather than watch them become unlivable. Greenbelt policy has major economic costs, as Henry went into. House prices and rents in the long run are a function of supply. And for most of human history, a house cost roughly what it cost to build. I.e. in the southeast, it would probably be around £100,000. There are other factors that cause temporary house price bubbles, massive inflows of capital as occurred in Ireland, Spain and the Euro, but countless economic studies show if you restrict supply of homes, don't be surprised when rents double and house prices triple. The difference in the UK at the moment is explained by a credit bubble which is slowly deflating itself. House prices are about 30% overvalued to to the long-term rent house price average, so even if house prices drop, because they're linked to that deflating credit bubble, rents are going to keep rising, and I would argue they're already at critical levels in London, the South East, and increasingly East and southwest. Finally, I would like to deal with a myth that Simon Jenkins in particular has made popular that planning restraints have nothing to do with land banks, where developers just sit on land. Developers create land banks as it takes two years to get planning permission. This means the opponents of those who want to build them. Green belts say, Well, I've got lots of land anyway. Well yes, but if it takes two years to get through the system, you need two years worth of land supply right. uh, at any one time. From Leeds to Cambridge to London, the Green Belt stifles cities that need to flourish. In other cities, regeneration is slowed because the Green Belt means that homes can't be built where people actually want to live it's quite hard to persuade the middle classes to move to Moss side. It's easy to say that someone else should live somewhere else, but don't pretend that it's morally just or economically rational. I want to see limited and attractive Greenbelt development. Policy exchanges long proposed various hurdles that should be got over for such development. Firstly, in local authorities around cities, a high and set proportion, for example 50% of land should always remain undeveloped. Secondly, those who have new homes built near them should have direct quality control and the ability to block new homes and shoddy estates. Thirdly, there should be compensation for those who live close to the new homes, if, for example, this was 5% of a property's value, a 200,000 pounds home would receive £10,000. Finally, and in some ways, most importantly, a levy, for example, £150,000 a hectare should go to the most elected level to pay for new parks and large open green spaces with new homes. I don't just want attractive new suburbs, I want attractive new parks and green spaces that we can all go to. It costs millions of pounds per hectare for land in most of the UK, about 3 or 4 million, for example, around Oxford and Cambridge, and much more around London. These are all affordable changes, they just mean less for landowners and slightly lower margins for developers. And the changes would incur, ensure quality development, particularly local control. And what this debate really comes down to is control. Our opponents believe that allowing people that little tiny bit of private greenery that you see on the photos before you must be stopped at all costs. Instead, we must be herded into a tiny bit of the country. A 3% increase in England's land given over to development could house us all for the rest of this century. I will worry about what happens on the other side of that when we get past 2,100. Anne and Tony are arguing we shouldn't even discuss this as a policy option. Excuse me. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I will, I will, I will, I will, sorry. Our, oppo- our, <laughs> our <laughs> opponents, opponents <laughs> argue that you should, we should not have a debate about how you build on the green belt. Okay. I believe we urgently need about. Uh, I believe we urgent need a debate in this country how we can both increase the attractiveness and biodiversity of the green belt while building it some attractive and desirable homes there to solve uh, a massive housing crisis. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So, um, the original statement was rejecting all development. Uh, and you don't have to keep to the oh, exact geez. word. We're, have to, to we're happy have. to take a session. people, <laughs> if we're all going <laughs> to some that, development, that's great. Um, because we are going to have a debate about what is rational and move forward. So, Anne, I I'm going go go to go first. Okay. Right. Right. Thank
3: you, Christy. Um, I don't know whether I should be um, pleased or disappointed. Really, that actually um, the arguments don't seem to have moved on um, greatly since um, the task force was looking at these issues in, in the late 90s. And actually, the world's moved on a long way. We um, really do understand um, some of the implications of climate change. The economy is sort of really gone into to chaos. We're a much older population and uh, we're sort of living in an age where neighbourhoods and communities are expecting more of a say. So um, I, I think, uh, and we have a lot of experience of, um, uh, of actually seeing successful redevelopment and renaissance of our towns and cities and, and what it can achieve. But before I get into the, the meat of it, um, I do want to, to get two things straight. One is that this is a nation with unmet uh, housing needs um, and with a strong demand for affordable housing. And the second is it is a nation with uh, well, significantly in excess of uh, two years' supply um, of uh, housing uh, land already allocated for Planning Commission um, on greenfield sites. So um, let's not kid ourselves that this is going to be a binary debate. Uh, between you know, green is good and brown is bad or, or, or vice versa, of course it's, it's, it's a debate which is shades of grey but it's uh, a debate really about priorities um, and about whether we think that the shape and the location of new housing and indeed other developments should be such that it supports the huge investment we've made over generations in our towns and cities it recycles and, and, and renews and refurbishes rather than builds afresh, that it recognises the the economic motor that lies uh, in our towns and cities uh, for the country um, as a whole, that it avoids the economic deadweight of sprawling development which adds cost to the public purse from the infrastructure, the sewers, the roads and other things that need to be provided far in excess of compact development within our towns and cities a pattern of development that meets um, housing needs in the communities where it arises, a pattern of development that's smart, that saves energy over alternatives, that reduces traffic, that minimises damage to that fragile but fundamental distinction that we still retain in much of the country between town and country uh, in a very crowded island. And let's not be distracted by some of the myths and the fables that uh, have roamed across this debate over uh, at least the last 20 years that I've been involved in it. Yes, of course we need more affordable housing. Yes, of course we need to tackle housing need. But let's not look at the lack of land as the solution for that. Let's look at the the challenges of getting our housing policy aligned and the the finance necessary uh, and and the permission uh, within local government and uh, social housing providers uh, to actually be funding uh, a social housing that is needed. Yes, of course, there are parts of our green belt that could look better, although actually only a, a tiny percentage are uh, derelict. But let's be opening this up for, for recreation and for leisure, for what the population's after, rather than uh, and to enlightened policies of land management um, and shift in, in the way in which land management is funded domestically and indeed at a European level. Let's not irreversibly lose it to concrete and tarmac. And no, of course we won't put all our housing um, on on brownfield sites. But for heaven's sake, if we are going to go for greenfield development, then let's do it well. Let's do it at scale. Let's do it in a way that truly captures the uplift in land value. Let's do it in a way which is truly owned by the people um, who live and will work um, in the area. And let's not be starry-eyed that we have lessons from history, which teaches much about how to do it, Um, in the 21st century, in the garden cities, uh, the eco-towns or the new towns um, of the past. And no, we won't run out of capacity uh, in our towns and cities or have to cram people in, in unfortunate ways, with unfortunate lifestyles and build over our gardens and green spaces. I remember talking to John Gummer in the mid-90s about the horrendous thought that we might be able to get 60%... Of our housing in towns and cities when it was at 53% uh, in, uh, in 1997. Uh, I remember talking to John Prescott about the, 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 the ambitious and very otherworldly suggestion that we could get 75% of our housing um, on brownfield sites in towns and cities and, and lo and behold um, all came to pass and we reached 78% which would have been completely unheard of and was beyond any sort of intellectual or policy um, pale um, in the uh, mid-1990s. And we can do it with style um, as well. There's actually more previously developed land available now in every region in this country um, than there was in 2001, despite all the development that's been taking place there. The gardens and green spaces that have been lost, that uh, need not have been lost, and we could have still substantially increased the proportion of development within our towns and cities. So brownfield first isn't a, a substitute for the sensible thinking. Of course we should be protecting the important open spaces and gardens in our towns and cities. And let's do it with real quality in the design and the look and the feel of the development. The National Planning Policy Framework sets the standards for design higher than they've ever been before. And as someone who's now working at the Design Council, you'd expect me to say that uh, the opportunities we have now to create desirable neighbourhoods for families as well as singletons have never been better if we can harness the forces of development that will be taking place, uh, we hope, uh, in the future. Um, And I put it to you, it's really a simple choice about priorities. It's a simple choice about the kind of future we want, a simple choice about the future of our economy, of our society, of our environment, and it's one where the heart and the head can align uh, to
4: come up with the right solutions and the right way forward. Thank you. Uh,
0: uh.
4: Okay. Um, well, I'm going to unleash a few of my ideas, resisting very strong temptation to take on some of uh, what I would strongly call one-sided. Um, oh, very um, very one sided uh, perspectives uh, that we've been presented with. Um, I'll just mention one or two, the British Social Attitude Survey carried out every year um, with government funding um, has reported year on year on year strong opposition to any house building anywhere that's near whoever's being asked. So, there may be a general uh, position, and then there may be what people say when it's going to affect them. I think that's a very important point, so the public is not sympathetic to that idea. Um, And secondly, population projections have a 25% margin of error, and nobody with any brain looks at population projections to 2,100. Uh, A 25% margin of error means that your house building projections are up to 50% out at any one time, Sometimes they're under, sometimes they're over, but it's just very important to know um, that that's the case. Um, I'll just start by saying the obvious, that we are an old urban industrial country, and it's not for nothing that we've been worrying since 1890 about the pressure on development um, and the sprawl of our towns and cities. In fact... um, looking at the land that's available only as land that hasn't got actual buildings on it is very misleading. What we need to look at is how much land is under development impact or spoken for by either commercial or social or housing activity. That is 75% of all British land. And in the Southeast, it's much higher than that. So actually land available that's not subject to flooding, that's actually insurable, and that's actually usable, Um, and that can be accessed for building, is extremely restricted. So it's just important to know that as a backdrop. Taking up the point of brownfield supply, um, brownfield supply is very variable. We do have a very big supply, as uh, Tony has pointed out. What's really interesting is that brownfield land isn't a stock that gradually gets eaten up, and then what do we do? It's a continuous flow. We've proved that in the urban task force, and all the evidence since has reinforced that. The capacity on small and very small sites that aren't counted in any land registry, any planning consents, or any plans, is absolutely vast. It far exceeds the supply of registered brownfield sites. Um, The mayor of London did a very thorough study on capacity in London, which is obviously under by far the most pressure and showed that in small and very small sites there was more than capacity to meet all our housing demand and actually use of small sites I'm not talking about gardens, I'm not talking about any green sites I'm not talking about school playgrounds, parks or anything like that I'm talking about little in-between spaces, little workshops little derelict bits that get left over um, can actually enhance urban streets as those of you who live in, in London like to do will know So technically, only technically, that doesn't mean to say logistically or politically or any other way, but technically, there is no need for additional green building at the moment or for quite a long way into the future. But the incentives are all wrong. So VAT free on new build, 20% VAT on repair, um, no infrastructure charge on outer building where you have to lay all the infrastructure, but very, very restrictive clauses on building in the um, existing frame, which is one reason why the costs go up. So, so waiting things in favour of using the capacity that we've got, so that at least it's an even playing field, and we have been arguing on the even playing field point before. Um, 12 years now would be very, very useful. Secondly, green belts are a critical tool for several reasons. I'll just mention a really critical tool. They are admired worldwide, and we are one of the few countries that's actually adhered to a policy that stood us in unbelievably good stead. Um, they're a critical stu- tool in limiting sprawl building, which is by far the most environmentally damaging form of building. And for those of you who are familiar with ecosystems and the state of British ecosystems, in other words, our rivers, our land, our forests, our air, and um, all the other factors that make up the underpinning of our survival um, in this little treasured island are under very severe strain. And the government produced a very remarkable report last year called uh, British Ecosystems Assessment. And I would really recommend everybody to it. It's very, very scary. Um, And one of the points they make, which confirms what Nicholas Stern argued um, under the Treasury in his very famous world-recognized report on um, the economics of climate change, it showed that the value of ecosystems to the economy, and I don't suppose Henry would dispute this one scrap, is absolutely huge, huge, enormous, and certainly counterweighs in a very strong way the other argument. This affects business, this affects house building, it affects an awful lot of things. So we have to take that into account too. Um, Thirdly, um, we have to increase the density of homes simply to keep population, i.e. numbers of people, at a level where doctors, schools, shops, and any form of public transport can be sustained. Um, And we know this both from the American experience and we know it um, of of sprawling and not having sufficient density for those services to be provided um, in the way they are here or in other parts of Europe. Um, But we we mainly know it because our household sizes overall are shrinking and have been shrinking over a very long period of time. Um, And as the numbers of people continue to fall, per unit and both previous speakers over the other side uh, did mention um, under occupation and spare bedrooms and all of that um, there is a big problem over population loss without the increase in numbers of housing units so we have no choice actually if we want to sustain any core services in anywhere, villages, towns or cities but to um, increase the density of units and as Tony said that can be done in a very sophisticated, careful and um, incremental way. Our cities overall are very low density compared with other European cities, which works against our public transport system, it works against all sorts of aspects of social integration, family cohesion and, and other cities. So there are big social costs to the low density that we have already, if that density continued to fall, um, which it would if families were encouraged as they, many of them, I agree, would like to do, uh, to move out uh, to greener places, um, then we would be in a lot of trouble. Let's quickly talk about the family issue. They do have greater space needs. That space includes outer space, but it also includes lower traffic. And one of the nightmares of the suburbs is traffic and roads. And um, I think that's a really big issue that's very under-recognised. But the biggest problem which was referred to is under-occupation. It's growing extremely fast. I think it grew by 43% over the 2000s, which is a massive increase. Um, because all of our tax system and our incentives are extremely heavily skewed in favour of property ownership and underoccupation, and as Kate Barker argued in her report, we do need much better and more even incentives against underoccupation with a progressive charge in for space. Um, one of the big consequences of having the wrong incentives isn 't just that elderly people underoccupy it's that elderly people are isolated, unsupported can't reach the doctor, can't reach the shops, and in many cases shouldn't be driving, but they have no choice. So again, there are many models from Switzerland, from Holland, from Germany, and other countries, including Italy, um, uh, where the model for elderly care could be much better. Um, Finally, um, the scope for reusing and remodeling is huge. Um, I won't go into all the details, but we only talk about empty homes. Empty homes are not only in derricked areas of Oldham. uh, There are many in London, uh, many in London. Um, In fact, just to tell a little story, Richard Rogers walking around Chelsea. Oh, Flip, I'll have to tell the story in the question. Please (laughs) (laughs) ask (laughs) me.
0: There are many,
4: many, 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 many empty homes in London, including Chelsea, including Westminster, and uh, all over the city, in fact. What we never think about is the volume of commercial empty properties. So in one of the very booming boroughs like Hackney, 18% of all commercial properties are empty, and many of those can actually be very well converted. So just to finalise, we have a political problem with outer building. Not my political problem, but posh people, outer London people's problem, that they don't like building next to them. And it's not just nimbyism, it's about all these other factors that we talked about. And we have a social problem with outer building, because outer building, as the new towns were, and as the eco-towns, if they ever get built, will be, is a very filtering process. We do have increasingly segregated and concentrated populations in parts of our cities, which we can avoid if we're clever and careful, and it is very, very important that we do. Thank you all, and
0: thank you very much indeed. There's have actually a very wide range of points about quite a wide range of subjects within that, but uh, uh, just to make three points before we open it up. Um, first, I think I heard Tony say that while we shouldn't allow much on the green belt, if it's good design, good scale, then it's a possibility. Yep. Yep. So... These are three people prepared, like to, prepared, prepared to allow folks down that. So we, that's one aspect. Secondly, I heard Anne say about the tax system. I think probably there was nobody on this panel who would disagree with some aspects of the tax system story. Um, but I also heard on, on this side uh, that much more about the outcomes of the current system in terms of higher prices, uh, higher costs, less housing, small housing, bad housing as an outcome of the current system. Now, when that leads to a question of what types of system might change that, and, and particularly it's concentrating on different types of incentives and the, and the extent to which the constraints are indeed producing inadequate results. But everybody has agreed, therefore, on... We need more housing. We need more use of, more effective use of land. We are concerned about what's being done at the present time, and we know that people will not be particularly happy about giving up um, their freedoms, so they don't want something next door. So there's a, a wide range of issues to come through. But can we start by? couple of people who would like to say things uh, it doesn't matter which side so we'll start with you and then we'll know which side and then we'll try and move it around so we get different
2: uh, and could you say who you are I'm Mark Swindles Um, uh, question for Mr Burton actually Um, you used a couple of stats quite powerfully um, on the situation in 1997 when you were talking to John Gomer about sort of 53% of brownfield supply um, and similarly that um, there's more land available now than there was in 2000 on the brownfield I'm just a bit confused, are you saying that so there's less of a supply problem now
1: which I do extrapolate from I'm that I'm saying there's
3: absolutely no mm, um, despite all the development that's taking place within our towns and cities um, yeah. in the last 10 plus years um, despite the fact that's an increasing share of the total amount of development that's taking place in this country there's actually more land uh, available in our towns and cities now than there was then
2: Sure. Doesn't well. I'm still struggling with this bit. The second part of my question was the sort of, I got a conflicting message um, between you and Prof. Power on um saying like about leveling the
1: playing field. And on the one hand, that um, development in the green belts are somehow more expensive because of sewerage and the roads. But on the other hand, the sort of tax treatment of repairs and, you know, the access to the framework inside is more expensive, which is it, you know, which is the lower
4: place. Shall I clarify? There are are extra costs to building on Greenfield sites. At the moment they're wrapped up in in indirect subsidies on the whole, apart from the absolutely immediate costs. Whereas within the inner city, well within the city building on Brownfield lands, one, there's a big tax imposition. And two, there are much more restrictive
0: um, planning regulations and
5: other difficulties that make it more no, expensive. I will which is more that. I think we move these are over, yes, come thank you, Christine. I'm Pete Redman, I've um, developed about twenty thousand houses over the last thirty five years. Mostly subsidised mostly in London never had a problem with getting planning permission except uh, where our proposals would alter the tenure balance and politicians are rather averse to the status quo being challenged. They might not get elected next time round if uh, you build more homes for ownership in an area of council housing perhaps or vice versa. And I'll come back to that as that's the question at the end. Can I make two uh, what I believe are quite powerful points? First of all, I think Professor Overman's quoting research, um, it's research I've looked at closely and I think is flawed. I think to measure constraints in the planning system here in the US by the length of time it takes to get consent is very, very different from looking at what other kind of consents you need in the States from infrastructure suppliers and so on compared to the aggregate system that we have here where pretty well everything is done through the planning process and indeed whether you get permission or not. The second point is that house prices are not to do with supply, when you're in the sort of 2% of uh, stock-to-household ratios um, to 5%. When you're at the other extremes, both of those, in very uh, tight supply and high-demand areas, Lake District. You get price effects. If you're in Pathfinder over supplies, you get price effects. But in the middle of the market, it is people spending power that sets house prices, not supply. And in um, the country, we have delivered in the last 20 years more n- new additional dwellings to our stock than households. It is not a planning problem. In London, we do have a problem. We have some advantages. It's very low density. Question.
6: <laughs>
5: we have a surplus of family dwellings compared to family-sized ha- households. Um, and um, we have, of course, the problem that uh, household numbers are growing at 33,000 a year and we're only building 22,000. So I would say um, that our problem is not about the planning system or zoning of land, such as Greenbelt. But I applaud the idea of choice and quality that Alex and Tony both talk about. Um, you know, we can't just aim for one sin- single type of development, but we do need to address the real problem, which I think Anne is just touching on. It is one of political and cultural problems that have ended up with the perverse statement from Alex that garden cities can only be built where there aren't any people who are going to complain.
2: Oh, I think that wasn't my, my point. Is uh, in so much way to Anne's, in the incentives matter. At the moment, when we build new homes you get the green fields built uh, near you, built on. Usually, of course, unfortunately because of this idea, we have to be very dense and packed in. What happens is that density is at a rate which most people do not like high density. Anything about 30 homes per hectare is, is strongly, is very strongly opposed. Flats are very strongly opposed. So we build the homes that people don't like. We impose a cost on them by getting them in green space. We don't build any green sort of attractive space or parks with it. And on top of that, the fact that the problem is that this system has been going on so long that you pay three or four million pounds a hectare for land. The amount that you have left over for quality design and attractive homes is almost nothing. So one of the reasons that even as our society's got richer and richer, the quality of homes got more and more mediocre is because more and more of that is just going into land purchase in the first place. And on top of that, you don't have local people who are in- affected by it don't have any say. And the great estates that were built in London, the attractive big estates like Pimlico and so on, what happened? If you had a single landowner. So everything he built affected the properties nearby. What we need is a planning system that tries to recreate the best of, of the past because we know how it worked, rather than just saying we're not going to build at all in these places. And I, I do like the fact that Anne mentioned under-occupation. Um, it's good to debate with someone whose brain enough say that, but no politician will ever say that. So they just say we don't need more homes, which is a, just an outright lie. Henry,
0: you
1: wanted to come back on... Um, so my, I, I never really you know, what, know what to think about this. Look... For sure, we could maintain current build rates for quite some period of time by insisting that stuff—the same proportion of stuff goes on brownfield. Because current build rates are way too low for what we need socially. So uh, you know, if we're going to build 100,000 homes a year, uh, you know, when the estimate suggests we need 250,000, you know. I'm reasonably comfortable with the argument that those 100,000 probably be shoved into our existing urban thing by you know, building on garages and all of these kind of things. I mean, that's kind of the point, um, which is that, yes, you can achieve these things. But as you do it, generally speaking, by lowering the aggregate amount of development, uh, I will, I'm glad Peter thinks our research is wrong. I shall have to explain to him over drinks why he's wrong that our research is wrong. <laughs> um, I, I never try to get into arguments with developers around, speci- about, around the specifics of building a house because I, I suspect that they always know more than me but I sometimes worry at the number of developers that believe that supply and demand do not jointly determine price in the housing market I, if, if both determine price but it, 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 every, you know every economist who has ever studied housing prices would think about demand and supply jointly determining price. The idea that it's just one or the other is, I'm afraid, uh, a mistake. So you know, supply does matter to, to, in explaining the high house prices that we have in this country, and high brownfield targets, and the fact that we're meeting them, uh, matter for explaining why we have low build rates in this country. Whether these are socially good outcomes is another matter.
0: Jordan. You, want, you were, uh, you were yeah, next in line uh, John on. Left to GLA London um,
7: you mentioned the strategic housing land availability assessment, now's just about to do another one uh, there are three big components to that uh, we've got of course which is everything up to about um, a quarter of a hectare and that's sort of assessed on the basis of this sort of trend, we've got large identified sites which is over a quarter of a hectare which comes from and allocations. and we've got what we call potential sites, which are the ones that all the developers want to know about, and which are identified in confidence on a site-by-site basis right across London, um, and the probability, estimated probability of those coming forward detached to them, um, and that's aggregated up across the whole borough, so that you can get a more refined idea about windfall sites. We're now faced with... What's certainly in my career has been the biggest single projected increase in population we've ever had the 2011 UN, ONS figures about another 800,000 for London uh, which divided by 2.3 and lies comes out with about 50% increase in household requirement Chris, does that sound reasonable? No. Well no, um, it doesn't sound reasonable but it's probably Just as a ballpark we haven't got the household figures yet and we've got the new national planning framework. Through where you're supposed to bring demand and supply together. Where else should I look when I'm doing this schlob over and above where we've looked before? We've sort of said we look at the opportunity areas. Henry's just mentioned the problems of ground building on brownfield sites. We've got a lot of them, but the stuff doesn't get built out, particularly here in, in East London. We've got town centres, great problems of site assembly in the real world, but the theoretically a lot the, of the potential for higher density development and we've got um, what the government used to think but has now stopped thinking, is that the great benison of um, industrial land, let the market rip, and about uh, 5,000 hectares of industrial land would go like that, 800 to the hectare relative to about 5 million for housing, or office space, and we've had a liberal approach to release of office space already. Where else are we supposed to look? So it's a real question. We've, we've just started doing Can
4: it. Can I just give a shot at another no, no second you meant Well, <laughs> you did say very casually, um, difficult to find sites other than in East London. East London is half of London. So when we did our Thames Gateway study, and we looked at how long it had taken London to expand from the city westwards, and how many pop, what population, what density, what values, and so on, and then you look eastwards, you don't only get a different... Poverty picture, you get a different land picture, you get a different density picture, you get space everywhere. Yeah,
0: I, I'm counting those already.
4: I know, but so the problem is you know, you have the Greenwich Millennium site waiting to be built, we have the Olympic Village sites now projected to take 30 years to build out because of poor demand. And you go east from there and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So what's the problem? That exactly reinforces the argument I was making. What's the problem We're building? I'm forever trying to persuade the people that work with me to go and look at the places they can get access to an occupation for less than 100,000 in Royal Docks. It's only 20 minutes from <laughs> the centre of London. And, and So we do have a problem, but we don't have a problem with supply we have a problem of demand because the incentives are all wrong because people's idea of what they can afford is wrong and if you try to build for these 800,000 extra people in London in London's Green belt or beyond um, then you have a problem with low paid workers and travelling and etc, etc, so
0: I mean that's not a solution either Okay, we'll come back to one if you want
8: Hi, My name is Matt Griffith um, I do bits of policy work but this is really a question from my own personal perspective that, I'm living in a two bedroom flat at the moment with a young child and a wife um, and no garden My best man is living having to sleep on his workshop floor and sofa surf um, My other best friend is living with his parents All of our NCT- my wife's NCT group are living in f- cramped flats without gardens and none of them want to be there and this is really a question about responsibility and policymakers, particularly to you, Tony, and, and your talk, which really didn't seem that coherent to me, um, particularly as you'll be architect of the Brownfield F- First policy. And I wonder whether you have reflections on what went wrong and um, whether you feel any sense of regret at the fact that um, a whole generation is facing that. Um, and in particular, you said that we won't have to cram people into cities, are my experiences that that is happening? And also, you said gardens need not have been lost. Well, why didn't CPRE or other people point that out for the 20 or 15 years when that was happening? Um, anyway, that's the question.
0: Um,
3: um Well, I, mean, I, I understand and recognise the um, situation that you've um, described, but I think the solution to it is not about the lack of land. Um, or a lack of opportunity for the provision of the housing that's needed through the planning system. So, what you're pointing up is a lack of housing being provided, um, despite the fact that the land is available, that the land has been allocated, um, and the, the lack of housing that's coming forward to meet housing needs. The only needs. housing
8: that's been developed in the places where I've lived over the past 10 years have so been small flats that are uh, very unsuitable for families and now have families living in them. And the reason they've been built like that is the planning system unless I fundamentally are doing something. And a, a planning system put in place by your lobbying. I just wondered what oh, that you doing
0: So we'll have one more go of that and then two over there, your second thoughts.
3: I repeat, there's absolutely no reason why the mix and range of housing um, across this country that's necessary could not have been provided through the, the, the current planning system um, on brownfield sites. Um, there is land plenty, As I indicated, there's more <coughs> land available now for development inside our towns and cities than there was 10 years ago, despite the fact there's been a huge amount of development uh, taking place. So, could, it's not only yes, I mean, I a planning process. How that works, but I don't, to I, deliver it. I a genuinely, a genuinely because, guess what, you build something and then five years later a bus goes No, but hang on, why so is, suddenly some more
5: land becomes available.
2: Why, why does land cost £3 million around Oxford, £4 million around Cambridge, over £10 million in most of London? You're saying that, that there is no reason, that there is no scarcity of land, but land costs astronomical amounts that is then passed on. That's why housing costs so much. The cost of building a house, yeah, the cost of a house is just the cost of building it plus the land it sits on. That's what we mortgage. But well, no, what we've done is it, the cost of building a house, if you had, uh, if people go out and build a house and sell it for £100,000, they would and they would make a profit. The fact is they have to pay a lot for the land because for year and after year after year, we haven't released enough land. What happens when you don't have enough supply of something? The price goes up and up and up. And now we have an entire generation of people, under, basically under the age of about 45 who are about to hit huge prices. I, I don't think, uh, you know, you need to apologise or, or your motives were wrong. But how you can say now there isn't a problem when you have house prices where they are, when rents are uh, they are overcrowding is where it is, social housing wages at two million. How you can look at that and say that isn't a problem? Uh, It's a huge problem, which I acknowledged at the top of what I said. It's got
3: nothing, or virtually nothing, to do with (coughs) with land supply and planning system. It's got
6: everything to do with uh, housing policy and finance available to provide social housing. So why
2: why do they pay so much for the land? Why is land so expensive? Because, because we're okay. an island. But <laughs> so you <laughs> ah, <laughs> <that>, But why <laughs> do they pay so much for land, Tony? But we're now getting lots
6: of people who want to take part.
0: Yeah, on the so specific you point, just on gardens, um, actually,
3: there was a lot of campaigning on precisely that point. It just wasn't listened to. Yeah. Okay.
0: So you're up the back, yes? Because you have put your hand
9: up <laughs> Thank you. Uh, good evening, uh, James Mabbott. Um, I've got a few points. I, I just, I was a bit concerned that I'll, I'll keep it brief, don't worry. Um, I I was concerned that there wasn't much discussion of viability um, of land in in city centres. I I understand the point that um, we don't want to develop small sites, was was a point that Professor Powell made I believe, (coughs) but you also made the argument that there is enough space in city centres to develop small sites, which seemed a bit contradictory to me. (coughs) Also it was a bit more uh, of a proactive kind of um, discussion. Um, is there any way that we can kind of distinguish between different um, different areas of Greenfield, perhaps areas where there is uh, high demand for housing? And could we have a scheme whereby uh, we, we look at developing those sites? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to come to a, a cost-benefit a- argument, an economist argument, and, and, and one of the problems is that the costs of development are not offset by benefits for people who live in those areas could we have a system whereby if we do build on some greenbelt we perhaps increase protection or increase fund uh, support for other areas of greenbelt that people highly value. So we, we, we lo- might lose one piece of, of greenbelt but we gain higher protection and higher support for other areas.
0: That's, yeah, that, sure. that's one of the ideas which has, has been, in, uh, started, well, it's been around for a long while but, but it has been brought forward a couple yeah. of times lately particularly starting from Barker but also in the last couple of years, and it's, a, it's one of the things which is on the table at the moment. Can we take the okay, three or four
6: minutes so, that we don't...
10: pull and then you. And uh, then. I wasn't going to say anything, uh, just listen, but I have been uh, spurred to say something by the pre <laughs> occur that I just heard, with which I have huge sympathy, my daughter just having qualified as a solicitor and unable to afford more than a studio apartment. Um... Tony said that the argument hadn't moved on since 1997. You should realise it has. The evidence has moved on. There was a period in, uh, a naughty period in the civil service in uh, April, May 1997 when the civil servants didn't have masters and they commissioned me uh, to do the best job I could to model the impact of alternative land availability on real house prices, region by region. Uh, And I did that. It took about two years. Christine, I think, remembers it probably. Uh, And during that period, this 60% wonderful brownfield site's uh, target was announced as a result of the pressure from the CPRE. And so we modelled that as one of our scenarios. The impact of that on real house prices, we estimated from our model, would be an increase of 131% over 10 years. Uh, When we presented these results, two things happened. One is the civil servants wouldn't believe it. They said this is extravagantly enormous. Of course, it's a huge underestimate, a significant underestimate. Uh, And secondly, they said, well, these results could be used by people who are critical of what is now government policy, so we won't publish the research. Um, however, that was the best answer that I think quite good research could come up with. And one of the features of that work, which has not been mentioned at all really, was it took account of how the demand for housing space varies with income. As people get richer, and most of the people who argue in favour of retaining green belts are richer, They demand more space, and that pushes up the price of all housing, but it pushes up the price of decent housing proportionately more. So, you know, the the evidence is overwhelming that brownfield targeting, brownfield first policies, have a very substantial impact on house, real house prices in this country, and have made it. All but unaffordable to have decent housing for younger people. It's all right for old farts like me that have paid off their mortgages. One final point: uh, you know, this is a tiny island. The Netherlands, which is a much more densely populated uh, country than we are, has a, I think, quite good, um, no, quite good uh, planning policy, quite regulatory. Has new housing which is 45% larger than British new housing and 38% cheaper per square metre. It can be done in a reasonable way, preserving a high quality of the environment, which I'm all in favour of. Uh,
11: my name is Keith Boyfield. I'm wearing my
1: centre of policy service
10: hat.
6: Given the fact that we have this huge
11: pent up demand for housing, um,
2: why don't we see builders actually constructing more houses, even given the house mar- mortgage market it is as it is at the moment. Um, I noticed that um, Tim Lernick here at the LSE is predicting there will be even more of a problem. The problem will be exacerbated when the mortgage um, finance market recovers. It just strikes me that there must be a problem with planning. This is where I do disagree with Tony. Over-available... Land
11: for uh, house construction because there's such a huge demand, and we've just been hearing from the gentleman at the back about the terrible overcrowding we have here in London. Surely there, would, um, there is a problem with meeting this demand because the house builders, as I would have thought, would be able to sort of sell their houses and apartments.
9: It's very can, I, can I take that on? Because I think well, it's, it's, yes, it's okay, critical. In,
2: well, then can you have to okay, and then, sorry, but, but the Treasury has never understood the, the dynamics of the land and housing and planning market. What happens is because it takes so long to get land through the system, developers' land bank, they also start to land bank because land prices rise because there's not enough land being released. So developers have lots of land on their books. What happens in a downturn is that land rips apart their balance sheet because it starts to fall in price. They then have to cut back output. The planning system then refuses to allow them to build as supply as, as the system gets back. So we are basically trapped in an ever-cyclical downward increase with rising prices and falling output, and the Treasury has never understood it and that's why housing policy is such a mess.
0: What I want to do is to get uh, everybody who, who wants to speak from a floor um, quickly so that we can then have a summary so t- but Tony do you want to come back immediately at front, or, uh I mean no no let's keep going
3: okay
0: so you were next and then you behind and you there and you there so four of you Sorry. <coughs>
6: Drummond Robson, a planning consultant and uh, the secretary of the London Planning and Development Forum, um, I think one of the key things that perhaps should be explored—we've touched around the edges of it—and that is the political system that is supposed to be underpinning all of this uh, uh, wonderful setup. Um, and uh, as a planning consultant, I obviously witness it every day, um, and um, the. Uh, uh, the concern that I think um, has been expressed around the Greenbelt is very, very well demonstrated around particularly London. First of all, um, the scale of Greenbelt around London is something that just um, beggars belief. It's about four times the size of the of the, of the area of the GLA. Um, now that is an enormous amount of land. And Nobody is pretending that it's all being used for agricultural purposes, nor indeed for recreation. Its availability for the public is um, um, minuscule. It's more as about 1.5% one, one of that land area is available for public access, for example. Um, the, uh, the concern about the growth of um, the um, Greenbelt area um, over time has become um, itself a, a problem, I think, in, in terms of the, sh- of the sheer uh, way in which um, local councils have um, taken on board this as being something they want utterly to protect. And politically, the, the, the term Green Belt is such a wonderful shibboleth that um, people hang on to the title even though they have very little idea what it actually is, um, and if I could just finish this point, um, the, the green belt is in fact an administrative uh, nicety. It is not a land use allocation of any kind, uh, and so it is entirely uh, controlled politically, and and that uh, I think is at the bedrock of the problem, and it is fueling the current um, world of. Um, uh, um, um, national uh, uh, planning framework material and down to the local level. Thank you.
0: behind
12: um, lady Yeah I just wanted to pick up uh, John Lett's point back about housing availability okay, and also well. uh, sorry John Pierce I'm a from London borough. These my own views though. Uh, <laughs> right. um, and also Tony's point about the National Planning Policy Framework and also the point made by a gentleman over there about distinguishing different parts of the Green Belt. Um, I'm aware that the Green Belt seemed to have entered the development plan system in the (coughs) early 50s, early to mid 50s, in the uh, county development plans. Um, But it just seems to have frozen life as was then. There's no particular planning rationale at that time. It was just simply, that was life everything froze on a particular day in the 1950s. Um, And I'm wondering whether if we applied the principles of the National Planning Policy Framework, we would have come up with a different answer if the framework existed in in the 50s. I'm thinking particularly of uh, a number of sites I'm aware of um, where we have central line stations uh, surrounded by open countryside. And And if one applied the principles of the NPPF, particularly around sustainable development, Accessibility to the public transport network. Um, I'm asking myself whether we would have uh, found quite a lot of development around London, which maybe may is a happy medium between the arguments that we could probably found. Well, so in our case, um, the work we've done, we, we, we can find opportunities for housing in certainly four figures um, if we apply that kind of principle. Uh, so I just wondered whether the, um, the speakers think. Th- uh, whether the national planning policy framework applied in the fifties may have come up with a different answer.
0: <laughs> nice question, madam. <laughs> Sorry.
13: Hi, I'm um, Tabitha Lith. I'm a local authority planner. Um, it's picking up on the comment that the gentleman was making earlier about um, you know people having to live in rented accommodation, small-sized properties. I think. This is partly what was being said about culture before. That, um, you know, I'm a young person, and but I've realised I can't live in Kensington and Chelsea if I want to, you know, have you know on the wage I have. I realise I have to live somewhere that's perhaps not the nicest area, doesn't have the best schools, but um, you know, it serves me quite well. It, It, you know, I can get to work. There's public transport and other things, and I think there's sort of a very much a culture of we demand this, we have to own a property. You know, lots of my grandparents never owned their property it didn't do them any harm. I'm not saying there is isn't a problem, but also I think people are talking about um, planners holding things back May, maybe there's some of the planning policies but also finance, like the gentleman saying earlier, why aren't properties being built? Finance is an issue, you know, companies they come to us and say, I, you know I've given planning permission for buildings and they said we can't get the finance from the bank anymore, otherwise we build it, you know, we're, this is going to be our family home.
2: If you're paying three or four million for land, um. you have to borrow a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm <laughs> sorry, it's particular <it's laughs> naptic yeah, always.
0: Um, thank you. You're going to get your three minutes only if you... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't <laughs> dream of saying that. So, oh, okay. you... I, uh, you want to shout um, I was just wondering, to so what extent people
12: think this problem could be helped by reducing demand in London rather than increasing supply by encouraging economic development in other cities?
0: Maybe it's Ben. Ben, a question? Chan. In the um, early part of the 2000s, we had planning provisions, we had enormous demand, we had loads of money
1: available, and yet house building did not rise to meet it. So I think it actually goes down to the house building industry, which has failed us to provide, to, ta- to, to take on the development. And it's nothing to do with the Green Belt. It's nothing to do with uh, <laughs> planning, it's actually,
0: it's the <coughs> supply chain that's not working, it's the... Okay, one final question, everybody. Sorry, well, Eric, uh, Eric, uh, sorry, I'm an amateur planner. But first of all, I'd just like to uh, agree with
11: Ben, I think we have a serious problem about the structure of the industry and the way it's actually consolidated to fewer and fewer, ever more sophisticated players being very subtle about how they played the market uh, for their own ends and absolutely nothing to do with um, uh, meeting consumer demand. But we also have a categorisation problem illustrated by uh, London Thames Gateway, where it was the apotheosis of the Brownfield ideal and its uh, abject failure over a decade to produce what people wanted. Um, has given brownfield development a very bad name. Uh, there are two main reasons, in my view, why it, it failed to deliver what people wanted, this apotheosis of the brownfield dream. One was that the uh, dreadful house builders not only have these of trans- internal business model structural problems, uh, but also discovered the buy-to-let market And never mind about what the great British consumer family wanted, Off they went to Hong Kong and sold 60% of the output before it had even been built. And that's why we've got the form of development in this very, very large uh, market that, that we have. The second problem was a complete failure of broader public policy, which was, if you saw a brownfield site, whatever its quality and actual potential for realistic development over any reasonable timescale, it was put into one of John Letts' uh, land supply site <laughs> categorizations by the GLA, of which the, uh, the most graphic example of that is some dreadful place called Parking Riverside, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, which, which sits there. It should just be a lovely urban park, but instead it's a major development uh, site which should cost zillions. Uh, in order to get the infrastructure before a single decent house is, is built there. Why on earth we couldn't have had a much more sophisticated model of building out from the town centres, yeah, of which there are plenty in Thames Gateway, and yes, capitalising on the existing <coughs> infrastructure and actually expanding that, it beats me. So it's a complete failure of the conception of what a brownfield development programme ought to have be.
0: Sorry, that was a, a statement, roughly. We're doing statements by now, but we want to give everybody a short time to pick up on particular issues and to uh, conclude their own position. But the core is land are plenty, but it's too expensive. It's not producing what we want. Uh, lots of other issues around important issues around, are we actually constraining the availability of land more and more as we go along rather than less and less? Um, What can we do about the demand side? Because at the moment, what's happening is people staying in London rather than leaving London, so the situation is being exacerbated. Um, And the house-building industry, and shouldn't we have a rational system, which is cost-benefit analysis, perhaps within and would the MPPF have done a different thing?
1: Uh, well, we've, we've covered a lot we've of ground. Lot of ground. <laughs> uh, what, we? I, I, what I struggle with, I think, is that my, my feeling is that, the, that we have problems on both the demand and the supply side of the market. And sensible government policy needs to be tackling both uh, sides of the issue. Uh, and it won't, while significant proportions of the people who are engaged in the debate pretend that it's just one side of this is the problem and not the other. Um, you know, I just don't, you know, I just think it's very, very difficult to look at the housing situation in this country uh, and say that all of the problems are on the demand side, none of the problems are on the supply side. Off we go, we've only got to solve the supply side. Uh, we've only got to solve the supply side of things. I think things will be, we'll be in massive trouble in 10, 15, 20 years' time. The other thing I have to say as an economist, <laughs> you know, I think people's demand tends to express what they want, and I'm all for removing the distortions that might sort of privilege them towards something. This guy here wants to live in London and have a family. I don't see why someone else should be decided that he has to go and live in Manchester um, if, if, he, if he's stupid enough to have a child. You see, I'm on your side. I'm on your side, right? So this is, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I and especially, I'm probably on the cusp. I think if you're sort of 40-ish and you bought early enough, just I'm just about okay. Alex and people like him are screwed. And deep down, I think it's, a, it's actually a, an issue of social justice. Uh, You've just got to address the supply side problem if we are going to address the social injustice that comes from high house prices which hit the young and the poor. Uh, and that makes me sound, you know, that how ironic that the right-wing economist sounds like the most left-wing, uh, left-wing member of the panel. But um, I think it's a matter of social justice. I think we need to address both demand and supply, and just refusing to accept that it's anything at all on the supply side, I think isn't helping us. Alex? Um, well, I'd like to address the, the, the system. The house building system
2: is completely and utterly broken. and has been for some years. Um, the reason is land is released very slowly by councils, Um, That's how you get planning commission. Uh, Once developers have it, it's an appreciating asset. If you're not stupid and you've got an asset that's going up in value, what do you do? Hold on to it for as long as you can. So not only do you have land banks because you need it, because you have two years worth of supply, rolling supply, because it takes a long time to get it. You then have something that's going up in value, so, like I said, developers hold on for, for as long as possible, and they know that no one else can get land and undercut them because they know that no land is being released by councils, because that's the way our planning system works. Councils decide how much land is released, they release rese- it. And that's pretty much it it's a very slow process so you're, you know that you can sit with this appreciating asset this then allows the people who say oh it's not supply it's not our problem it's not our, we haven't done this you have created this you have created a system where there's undersupply or something which is appreciating and you've given the, the keys almost to the price levels to make 15 20 margins which is what they did in the early 2000s while building crap and not enough of it the lady who said lump it um basically you know I, I couldn't lots of people couldn't afford things in the past. This will be like the government saying, I'm going to allow 100,000 cars to be built every year and that's it. That's, and that's no, you know, this idea that people should just, it's an entitlement culture, they're not asking for anything. They're saying the government should get out of the way or make it possible to build enough attractive homes that people can afford a family home and you simply can't afford a family home if you're on the minimum wage or less than about 25,000 a year in most of the southeast. Also, if you think of the car analogy, this explains why developers hold on to land. If the government said you can only have 100,000 cars a year, if you had a car you'd hold on to it because you'd know that each year it would get more and more valuable. Finally, the point on quality, I agree with the gentleman at the back. What we want is basically better greenbelt and some development on it. And what we're talking about, i keep going back to this, is perhaps 3% over the next few decades to get rid of a 25 billion benefit kill, <coughs> to get rid of a massive crisis, to allow people to have a decent family home and garden um, for them. And, you know, it's not just the, I, I don't take the old far to some ways because people care about their kids and their, their friends' kids. Um, so basically yeah, I, I think that if we remove this in a sensible way, we can get more good attractive homes built, both for the younger generation and the older generation will benefit too, because we'll have better attractive housing being built near them rather than the, the current Squash squashbart homes that are, are going to be marching towards you. And the only final thing I'll say is almost a, is that downsizing is on the horizon. Um, the, uh, the older generation also need to watch out in the sense that at some point uh, in 10, 15 years, people will start saying, "Well why we've ration land?" why don't we start rationing houses? Um, So it's in everyone's interest that we sort this problem out.
0: It's nice to know you're not... uh,
2: I don't support it, but I can see it on the horizon (laughs) that it's going at some
0: point. Um, Do you have anything more I think I'll... You go. Yeah, Okay. Okay. All right, so
4: uh, Ronald Reagan, when he was president, under instruction from their federal housing and development department, said... It's not supply, it's affordability. America had, I can't remember, four million surplus homes and a million homeless people. And if we look at Australia, we look at America, you can see models of massive building, very high house prices, and huge access problems for low-income people. So it's not that I actually disagree with him on his point on supply. I actually do agree with his point on the balance between supply and the bank, obviously. But It's just not simple. Housing isn't simple. So the second point I want to make is that housing doesn't operate in a vacuum. Housing problems don't operate in a vacuum. When we try to match housing supply and demand in places like Oxford and Cambridge, we're actually juggling many many factors not least ancient universities not least very very precious countryside not least ridiculous over demand and not least a large supply of accessible and actually relatively low-cost housing relatively near of course people would like to live in oxford cheaply It just doesn't work like that. And again, I think Henry knows about that. So so it's not simple to sort this housing supply and demand, this housing affordability and access. And those who battle with access to social housing, value of social housing, and making it worthwhile will will know that that's true. Um, Secondly, I totally agree with the house building industry problems. And the thing I don't understand is we have literally Maybe 60,000 small builders and 25 major builders, and the small builders aren't what small and medium builders aren't had, and that balance is wrong. The small builders are the ones who do the small infill sacks. Thirdly, whatever anybody says, we are a crowded island, and the reason why in 1850 people were very worried about land supply was because of the sprawl of our cities and because of industrial growth. That hasn't actually changed. Um, fourthly, if we look at Manhattan prices, they may not exactly match London's, but they roughly match London's for exactly the same problems. And if you're a family trying to live in Manhattan, you've got a lot of problems. If you're a family trying to live in London, you've got those problems. That's not to say that we shouldn't try and redistribute our housing stock more in of families. I really definitely think we should, and that would help old people. But it's not a simple A to B. And finally, poor people need to be near jobs. That's why the population of inner London, or London, has grown by 800,000. Not, ex- not only poor people, but people on modest incomes. And actually delivering the kind of housing people want, in theory, in a situation like that, is extremely difficult. And so how you make, how you cope between people's low wages and the shortage of land, and the pressures there are in London, whatever we say about the planning system, is really really tricky, which is why we don't solve it. It's not bad will. It's
6: because
3: it's tricky. Tell um, me. Well, certainly seems to me that over the last you know, 15 10 years there has been a bit of a dialogue of depth between the sort of demand and supply debates, and maybe you know we've helped move, move that one along a bit. Um, although, as Anne said, it's uh, more nuanced perhaps than than the sort of simple supply and demand curves um, might um, suggest. Uh, but I'm sure, uh, as it were, everyone in that debate needs to acknowledge and, and recognise you know, the, the, the validity of some of the arguments um, you know, in, in other parts of the, um, of the discussion. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, I think we, we absolutely have to acknowledge the land is there and shovel-ready for hundreds of thousands of houses in the planning system today, and it ain't happening. And if it did happen, it wouldn't be affordable housing that was being built. So um, let's actually recognise where some of the challenges lie, and it's a lot of it. Even if you think there are challenges in the long term or um, in the geography, there's an awful lot of land out there in places where it's needed. Or um, where housing is needed, which is not being converted into, um, into housing. I was delighted that we did a light upon the challenge of the house building industry, which none of us, I think, really addressed in our opening comments and actually um, came through loud and clear. I think one of the most interesting recent phenomena has been the rebadging um, of volume house builders to large house builders. <laughs> um, and uh, because they ain't building the homes anymore, they're just getting bigger and they're putting it on their balance sheet. And that's, and that's as um, Alex has said, and that, that's what they're there for. Um, and and therefore not surprising perhaps that some of those land holdings are not being converted into the homes um, that we need. It's the menu of things that are nothing to do with the planning system that I think where the solution lies to a lot of the issues that have been raised today. The structure of the building industry, the future of housing policy, the finance available for social housing, the tax and incentive systems, the availability for land assembly through compulsory purchase, uh, the wider economic geography um, point that that, that was made. Um, And the fact that where we do agree if we do, that there's a, a value in, in large-scale um, greenfield housing in some particular locations. We can't give the guarantees that the land value will be captured, that people will be properly involved, or that the quality of what is built is such that we can be proud of it um, for future generations. So um, let's really focus on those um, options before we sort of kick um, uh, the, the planning system or we'll see that as the, sort of, um, the, the main problem um, that's getting um, in the way. And if we do... Um, then I I genuinely believe that the future can be better than the past uh, in terms of the uh, affordability and the availability of the housing for those who need it and in terms of the quality um, of both the neighbourhoods and the houses um, which are being built.
0: Thank you. So if we go back to the uh, rather narrow, well the second half of the title which is rather narrow I think we actually do have a little bit of agreement there but there is the possibility that we should build somewhere, sometime, on the green belt as long as we build it well as long as we protect other parts of the system and as long as we don't build it next to us <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, I think we're agreed what <laughs> we well, agreed on secondly well, we're agreed that we ain't going to end the housing crisis even if we solve planning side of it. There are lots of other things which have to be done at the same time. I think there's still a significant disagreement about whether we on one side here saying very, very strongly that the evidence on price and on the extent to which things are not being built out is that we've got the wrong priorities in the context of planning as well as many of the other factors. Well, here, yeah, I think there's a feeling and a, and a strong belief, based on earlier work as well as on current feeling, that there are opportunities, enormous opportunities. If we're getting rid of retail, then we've got an awful lot of possible housing to build. And so we'll go on down that line again. Thank you all very, very much. And uh, there is a reception outside. And thank you all for coming. And thanks to...
5: Oh, on, on behalf of the British Government, as I can also thank Christian for chairing tonight's event, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which we all very much appreciated as well as to all the panellists who were introduced at the beginning. So thank you again for coming. Um, we have many more events um, in the future, and we look forward to seeing some of you at hand. So um, um, please follow up with police accountability. Police accountability.
4: Please accountability. Please anyway, <laughs> there's
9: a reception outside and we hope to come to you. Thank you all very much, and thank you again for the panel. Thank you.